I've played audiences that I feel like I could play Kanye and they wouldn't care and they would sing along. And I've played audiences that they'd be like, why is Quali playing that? So it really depends on the audience, but it's a personal thing for me. I don't feel good when I play his music. It hurts me. You know, it, the Kanye thing was real personal to me. One, two, three. Today's guest is Talib Kweli. And if you want this podcast to go to the tip top, listen up right now. Why, yo? So thanks first and foremost for braving my horrible singing at the top. Um, but my real Black Star fans know where I got that lyric from. That, of course, is one of the lyrics to Definition, which, of course, is on Black Star's album. And I'm pleased to be joined by one half of Black Star, but a whole ass amazing MC, Mr. Talib Kweli. Talib just changed my whole night. Okay. <laughs> so as as of the taping of this podcast, me and the fiance, we had a whole date night plan going to see John Wick 3. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then you drop on me that Black Star is performing tonight. I thought you were just performing. I did not know yeah. that most was performing with you. So oh, now no. Yeah, he's he's in America tonight. It, he's in America, right? <laughs> That's another thing, because he's always yeah. sort of around the world somewhere. I feel like he's a, a, a black wears Waldo. Yeah, he lives right now in between Barcelona and Paris. Wow. But he's in America tonight. He's in for, America for this week. <laughs> See, so uh, my uh, fiance is just going to have to deal with the fact that he might have just dropped $30 on some movie tickets that won't be, <laughs> that won't that be used. Fandango First of all, <laughs> the Black Star experience is priceless. Let's just start there. I agree. Okay. But it's it's a, a great entry point that you told me that because my first question was literally, when will we see another Black Star album? Um, yeah. So me as a fan of the group, I've pushed actively for a Black Star album for years. I've recorded songs. I've flown to where Moses is at. I've paid for studio sessions. I've come up with artwork. You know, on top of being a fan, a Black Star album would be very lucrative for me, personally. Yeah. But to his credit, Moses has always been ahead of the curve with the music business and the movie business. And um, his participation in it has always been on his own terms. And that's something that I've learned to res respect. That's something I've learned from Most Def that's helped me out. The way that he looks at albums is different. He don't even look at it as an album. So even the things that he's rolled out in the last few years have been like projects here and there and specialty things. When people wonder about the output of Black Star, I said, look at the output of Most Def. And then look at my out my output. I got 17 albums. Most got four or five. You know what I'm saying? So it's like really Black Star sort of rests on that man's shoulders. Um, and I'm not saying that to take away my responsibility or to say I, it's not a frustrating thing at all. It just is what it is because I'm blessed to whether or not there's a Black Star album out, I'm blessed to have a wonderful relationship with Most Def, and I'm blessed to do Black Star shows, uh, shows several times a year. So the Black Star experience has never stopped for me, even though it stopped for everybody else. Now, I, I'm sure you're asked that question constantly. Yeah, it might be the number one question that I'm asked. Yeah, and you see it was number one on my list, yeah. because as I told you when we were off air, I'm going to be the annoying person that asks you your top five MCs, mm -hmm. and my former co-host, Michael Smith, I remember when we did a top five MC list and he put both you guys in there. He was like, Black Star. I was like, that's not how this works. No, it is how it works. There's two spots in the top five. That for, is true. Me but I feel like that's a cheat because it's a group. It's technically a yeah, group. Yeah, well then, you know. <laughs> but no, I, okay. what I was going to say where I was going with that is that I often tell people um, whenever we discuss hip hop, I was like, well, think of your five Desert Island yeah, yeah, albums. Yeah. And Black Star for me is, is on my five, right? I appreciate um, that. And given the the thirst and the hunger that people have had to to have another album, uh, is most like I, I just gotta wait. <laughs> you just whenever the the mood strikes, or is, is, is he? I assume he's not oblivious to what the response would be if you did that. Right, he's not oblivious to it. But what's interesting to him is that he is actively not motivated by it. Like he's not motivated by that on purpose. I, I recently was in f south of France doing shows and I heard that most was going to be in a small town in Italy somewhere. 
So I flew over there. I was like, let me go check out the most deaf show in Italy. You know, and I called, I didn't tell him I was coming. I called the promoter. I was like, what time does the show start? It's like show starts around 10 or 11. So I was like, I'm going to show up at like 12 or one because that's what time most will show up. You know what I'm saying? Like so I showed up around 12 and then he didn't show up till like two, three in the morning. I, I actually took a nap in his dressing room and like the DJ, the opening DJ was so ill with it. He kept the crowd engaged the whole time. And I re I'll never forget this as long as, as I live when most walked in. The crowd was so hype and ready. They were chanting, most deaf, most deaf, most deaf. He walks in. He's like, why are they acting like that? Like, why are they so excited? I'm here. Calm down. They're going to get the show. You know, so the way that he works, like that's almost, that almost makes him go the other direction when he feels like people are entitled to his space in his body so the key is we need to stop talking about it and never ask him about <laughs> yeah, it ever again and then we, might, about right. then we might actually get it well take us a little bit through you guys's origin story in terms mm -hmm. of how you met and how you developed the chemistry that you have i was a fan of yasin bay um he was like the uh local boy made good uh he was a rapper that was in washington square park that was around brooklyn i would see him around he's a couple years older than me he had a group called urban thermodynamics with his with his brother uh dcq assess a female mc they had a little video on video music box and in brooklyn if you made it to video music box back then like i'm talking like 89 90 you made it you know and then most was doing television so uh malcolm jamal warner had a show a spinoff of the cosby show where Yasin was playing, he was a teacher at an inner city school and most was one of the kids in the class. Nell Carter had a TV show that most was on. I forget the names of both of these shows. At, when he was a little kid, and we, I used to see this on TV. Uh, the big win for him was uh, the Deion Sanders American Express commercial. And Deion Sanders goes in the store and he's like, oh, Neon Deion, isn't that? And he, he don't have his ID and he's like, oh, I'm gonna need to see ID. And like, I remember he got a check from that that he used to take us out to like McDonald's with his like American Express check. But I always looked at him as like sort of a mentor figure. I was incredibly impressed with him as an artist and as a man. Um, and I, I used to fan out. Our, the mother of my children became friendly with the mother of his children and we have children around the same age. I was working at the bookstore in Kiru Books so our, our baby mamas used to hang out, you know? And I used to go over his house and we used to have these elaborate family dinners and most has always been on his dean he's always been super muslim so he's always given me these i'm not i don't subscribe to any religion but the way that most deaf talks about islam and the way that it informs his life was always so inspirational to me and i just found myself sort of becoming his family we became family before we talked about any music and i left a demo tape over there that he listened to while while I was gone. And he was like, yo, this is really good. So I asked him to feature on a song, which ended up being my first single, Fortify Live. And because his single dropped at the same time, Universal Magnetic, we both had singles out on Raucous at the same time. And our chemistry on stage, he would be on my single, I'd come on his set, and we developed a stage chemistry that between the guys at Raucous and between me and most, we decided to do an album. Wow. Um, now you guys almost, uh, you know, and you've hinted at this, you have the opposite approach. He is... Less is more. As you mentioned, you know, he's got a small number uh, of albums that he's done himself. You, on the other hand, it, it, it's like, you, you know, you are producing music at a rate that is just super prolific. Well, you, you had like two albums in one year, right? Yeah. And, and um, 17, 2017. Yeah, so. 2017. You had two in one year. And what is it about it at this stage in your career that makes you want to produce and be that prolific? When you could, frankly, as somebody who's established in the game... You could very easily put out one album every couple of years. Mm -hmm. Why produce at this rate? Well, you know, a couple of years ago, my mentality when I did those two albums, it was the seven with Styles P and then it was the, um, and that's not the first year I did two albums. It was a Gravitas, uh, 2013, I dropped Prisoner Conscious and Gravitas. Uh, uh, Radio Silence, excuse me, I was confusing Gravitas with Radio Silence. There's so many of them. Um, you know, did you see the play Hamilton? Yes. The thing that struck me the most about that play and that book that the play was based on was that Alexander Hamilton was writing at a ferocious pace because he felt like if I don't document everything, um, I'm not doing my job as a human being. And so he just was a historian, a documentarian. He felt like that was part of his job. And if you listen to the Black Star album, one of the things that most Def says that we took seriously was real life documentarians. We felt like we had to tell our own stories. Um, that's sort of the, you know, romantic artist's answer you know which is true 
the other part of it is I'm a working class artist. You know, I don't, I don't I'm not a rich man. I'm a blessed man. I'm a privileged man. And, and being an artist, I get to determine my own schedule. I get to make money when I want to make money. And if I, if I choose to go out and make money, I could just make it happen, which is a privilege. It's an honor and a privilege. And most people don't have to do that. Don't get to do that. Most people have a job and a boss, but I'm, I'm not a rich man. And I think people, when they see you on television, they assume that all your troubles go away. Like the moment they see you on TV, like you're just rich forever and you're just paid forever. You don't have rent or mortgage or kids or things to worry about. And um, I work because I have a family to take care of. Um, late, you know, when I did the two albums in 2017, the plan was I need to sit down for a second. The plan was let me put out these two albums and then chill and do other things. And that's what I'm starting to do now. I've been writing TV pilots and writing movies and, you know, I'm doing my own show, podcast type show. So doing more activism work. But um, I do have a couple more albums in me, but I did chill after 2017. Now, you said a couple more. You make it almost sound like you do have a maybe a retirement goal in mind at, at some point from, from, from hip-hop, from rapping. Oh, not at all. I plan okay. on rapping until I'm done. Um, when I say a couple more, I mean just a couple more right now mm. that I could drop right now. Well, one thing I do notice looking around the landscape, certainly there's a lot of new you know, artists and uh, ones that are established in their position now, but it still seems like the best rappers are of a certain age. It, Nas is still one of the best. You're still one of the best. Most is still one of the best. Jay-Z is going, you know, what happened to him retiring? He, we like he, the 40-40 club? It's like the 40-plus no, club? Yeah, the 40-plus club of rappers <laughs> is... We we got a lot of experience. Well, that's what I'm saying is that that is for as much as people talk about rap and hip hop being a young man's game. To me, is still with some exceptions. Obviously, you still have J Cole and Kendrick and Drake and and those guys. It's still dominated by the same people it was dominated 20 years ago. I don't know what does that say about hip hop. I think hip-hop? that's because you and me are the same age demographic. And maybe I just feel that way because yeah. of that. Yeah, I think you know. I think that um, memory is not perfect, and memory is biased. Memory is what we're built on, but our memory tells us that the best music in the world is the music that we were listening to in high school and college, because that's when we were figuring out who we were. So I was in high school, like I felt like a black nerd outcast. I related to Tropical Quest and De La Soul and Jungle Brothers. I felt like I was in the native tongues and that was my identity, you know? And then when I started getting more aggressive and feeling more like a man, I I identified more with Jay-Z and Nas. Um, That became my identity. So for me, there will never be a better MC than Nas or Jay-Z or Most Def or Common. It'd never be. But for someone who grew up, who, you know, for my kids who are in their early 20s now, you know, they might feel like J. Cole and Kendrick are better than Jay-Z and Nas. You know, I I think that they have some years to go before they get to that point. But um, I think it's all um, what people are informed by. Our generation was informed by sort of a in-your-face, to be a little critical of it, surface consciousness, black power. Uh, we were trying to capture imagery, but not necessarily the spirit of the uh, black consciousness movement from the 60s. So we were wearing like X hats and if black Medallions. things you wouldn't understand, but bag. We had all this merch, <laughs> yeah. right? But we didn't really build businesses in the way, like the drug dealers was building business. Jay-Z was the only rapper out of New York to have his own label at that time and he was hustling. You know, other rappers who had their own label at that time was what, E-40, Too Short? But it came come from like the hustler mentality, like the woke conscious community. It was like, and NWA pushed back against it. Like, nah, that's fake. Like, we're gangsters. We don't wear medallions, you know? And then the the industry shifted and changed. Um, I think that the artists who are at the forefront of that, which would be Kendrick and J. Cole, they don't talk about that black consciousness as as much. They talk about being free free thinkers and independent spirits. They talk about being like, I am not your idea of a black man. Kendrick Lamar, he is calling women bitches and hoes on his record. He's talking about, uh, pip, pip, hooray. But you see him as a conscious artist because he's using the the negativity and the and the gang gangster mentality and the curses and the misogyny as a Trojan horse to push these messages. Same with J. Cole. All his records about the state of women's minds. You know, don't save her. You know, his records are about what's going on with women in the club and how he used to not be able to get women and now he can get women. Like all his records are about his relationship with women. But that because he knows as a as a businessman and artist, women buy records. So it's like they're making records. They learn from Jay-Z and, and Kanye and all these people. They learn how to get on the radio, but they also learn from me and most and common artists like this. They learn how to have that message. 
Yeah, in fairness, uh, J. Cole is also rapping about how a lovely young woman Absolutely. introduced him to almond milk, which I consider that to be burning. <laughs> yeah, he covers his, the gamut. You yeah, don't just stop at those savor. Yeah, yeah, no, he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, and you think about his early mixtapes compared to his evolution, it feels like all hip-hop artists kind of, not all of them, but a lot of them kind of make that same turn. Like Jay-Z went from, you know, Big Pippin, Song Cry to, mm. you know, doing an album. To apologizing for those songs. Oh, right, exactly. For those to where he, Jay-Z, when I see Jay-Z now, I'll be bugging out because Jay-Z looked like how I looked in high school. I'm like, he really came full circle back to like, if I, if I could rhyme like Tyler Quali. When I was in high school, I used to have wild dreads and a bandana. And when I see Jay with his wild dreads and his bandana, I'm like, and he rapping about black empowerment and his baby and his and his girl. Like, that's what I rap about. And assets and yeah. like, you know, how to have, how to turn a two to a four, four to an eight. I love <laughs> right? it. I, I was when Jay-Z, with the, at the height of Rockefeller success, I used to always say when Jay-Z doesn't have to make a club banger to get the label in the black for the fourth quarter, what we're going to really hear what Jay-Z wants to talk about. Because right now, all we're hearing Jay-Z talk about is you know, diamonds and things that people want to hear about if they go into the club. But I could always hear in the back of Jay-Z's mind, that's not really where I'm at. And when I don't have to do these club records, you're going to hear a different record. Because the the business model for hip-hop has changed so much, do you feel like today's hip-hop artists, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, are smarter than the previous generation? Absolutely. I mean, rest in peace to Nipsey Hussle and, and Jay-Z, of course, noticed. But Nipsey being the most prevalent and prominent example because he was taken, his life was cut short uh, so recently. True story. I started this year studying Nipsey Hussle. Like, my next album, I, I'm getting out of my contract so I could sell my album for $100. That, that was my plan. Like, I, I've, I've been paying it. Knew, I knew Nipsey did that. And, you know, as an artist, I was a huge fan of Victory Lap. Um, you know, I used to play it all the time. And I'm like, man, Nipsey really impressed me as an MC. Forget the business side. As an MC on Victory Lap, I was like, it made me stand up and take notice. Like, I'd already noticed the business moves. But I'm like, he's growing as an MC. This is an incredible piece of work. It got nominated for a Grammy. And it's independent. Like, that that doesn't happen. I'm here to tell you that does not happen. Independent artists do not get nominated for Grammys. And... That Jay-Z freestyle where he talks about gentrification, he talks about um, what Nipsey was doing. Jay-Z put it in a capsule so you could really see it. Now that this man's life has been like, now that we have the timeline, like he, he died at 33, we could see the, the path. What he was doing was unprecedented. Um, Tupac died when he was 25 years old. Imagine 33-year-old Tupac. You know what I'm saying? Like Chris Rock in a top five movie says, you know, 33-year-old Tupac, who knows, he might have been kicking Jill Scott down a flight of stairs in a Tyler Perry movie. Who knows? But I would like to believe that he would have been like Nipsey Hussle. Right. Man, that, that guy was such a visionary. But it's not just Nipsey. It's Killer Mike. It's, it's, it's an, an LP. It's, it's, you know, it's everybody out here. When you see, it's Chance the Rapper. It's, you know, Drake having a plane. Motherfuckers ain't have planes since Led Zeppelin. You know, like I... The focus on the business is impressive to me. When I first came in the game, there was a, a schism because people stopped wanting to be the best rapper and they wanted to be the best CEO. Um, Jay-Z captured that perfectly. But I remember people being like, no, nah, I don't want to just be an artist on label. I want to be Diddy. And there was a lot of pushback from real hip hop because of that. But some of that empowerment was needed. And a lot of us grew from that. Yeah, because it, it seems now, I think... Given, look, radio is still important, but would you agree, like, radio is not nearly as important as it maybe used to be when you um, were kind of first coming up? In, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And radio I think was this, strangling the game when I came in. I, and I think now, because streaming is the thing, that that has given more artists um, more of that sense of empowerment that you're talking about. Absolutely. My daughter's a rapper, and um, she just recorded, she's out here with me tonight, she just recorded three songs, and she's like, I want to put this out as an EP called The Cali Project. And I was like, babe... Three songs is not an EP, and I really need you to value yourself more and, you know, slow down. Like, you, you have all the time in the world. She's like, no, no, no. Dad, people are going on iTunes and putting out three songs EPs, and they're giving up for free, and they're letting... And I looked, and she was right. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, never mind then. Well, people are putting out like seven, eight song albums. Yeah, right? that's what me and Styles P did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the seven, and, and, and I don't know, to some degree, I don't know how I feel about it, because I was like, man, I'm from that generation where you, you people was talking about you if you didn't have at least 20 songs on there. Right? See, that's, that's, a, that's a generational thing, because people's attention span is so 
so small now. Like even with like, you know, I remember 9-11, Nelly and Shanti and Diddy and everybody made this, you know, pro, we're going to stand strong, 9-11. They played it on the radio for like a day. Remember Trayvon Martin was shot and killed. The game made a record with Rick Ross, Diddy. I mean, just about Ed Nipsey was on it, I think. Just about everybody in the game who had a powerful voice was on this game record. I remember seeing it on the hip hop blogs for like a couple of hours and then they went back to whatever beef. The way that we consume stuff is so sort of disrespectful. Uh, of what the time that artist put into it at this point. But the onus is not on the consumer. As much as I can say it's disrespectful, it's not the fault of the consumer. The consumer doesn't mean to be disrespectful. It's just when when everything is free for you all the time, why would you not want to get it for free? Like if you could pay $9.99 and just have access to all the music, why would you not do that? So the onus is on me as an artist. Well, how do I get my music out there? And that's where you come with the three-song EPs, the seven-song EPs. Okay, your attention span is shorter. Okay, well, then here's just one song. Well, well, and what other ways do you feel like you've had to change, you know, kind of with the times and and Mm -hmm. to adjust to this generation's consumption habits? Uh, I'm blessed to say that I've always made it a focus of mine to pay attention to what the young people are doing and what younger artists are doing. People always ask me, what advice can you give? I'm like, none. What what can y'all tell me? Because I can't tell you how to be me. I can't tell you how to be Talib Kweli. My path is unlikely. I'm not like a corporate marketed artist. I'm not someone who someone was put together. I don't have like chiseled abs and a gold chain and a Bentley. Like it's not like I don't have the stereotypical what people think a rapper. So I wasn't. I'm very unlikely. I wasn't supposed to make it. My path is only my path. Um, I can only tell you what I did, but it may not work for you. Um, so I look to younger artists for inspiration all the time, you know, from Soldier Boy to Chance the Rapper. Like I look at what they, even if I, whether I like their music or not, I look at how they get their name out there. Cause I don't need inspiration for how to write lyrics. I don't need inspiration for how to make music. I need inspiration for how is it that this young man who also comes from unlikely situations, whether it's a Chance the Rapper or Soldier Boy, they supposed to be uh, statistics. They supposed to have gone to jail and been shot by now. How did they make it out of their situation? What did they do business-wise, marketing-wise, and how can I learn from that? Well, what makes your path even more unlikely is considering the path of the rest of your family. Mm -hmm. You know, your mother and father, they're both um, professors. They're in academics. You have a brother that um, is in uh, constitutional law. Why are you the black sheep? (laughs) What what happened? Um, You know what? So people look at me as like an academic-styled rapper. So I'm the green family representative of hip hop. I'd like to think that my brother is like the Talib Kweli of the constitutional law world. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not really the black sheep. I just, my college is the streets. My college is the hip hop world. My college is pop culture. My parents stayed and my brother stayed with academia and that's needed and they're excellent and brilliant at it. And because like they went out and they, they my brother is about to have his PhD. Both my parents have their PhD. I'm trying to get an honorary PhD so I can hold in their face, be like, y'all did all this work and I just rap. <laughs> <laughs> like who had the better game plan? Right. Now, were your, uh, was your family, were they disappointed or did they give you any, you know, flack for the fact that you chose hip hop? Uh, no, my, my parents have been uh, supremely supportive and I could not have done it without them. There was a scary moment when I um, dropped out of school. I was going to NYU and I, I dropped out of school. But I, 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 my parents were paying for the dorm and I felt bad about that because I just wasn't going. I didn't go for like three months. My parents paid for the dorm. And I'm like, I'm not going to school. So I came up with a plan. I got a job at Inkiru Books. Um, that's how I started at Inkiru. It's like, I'm going to get a job and an apartment. And then I'm going to take them out to dinner. And then I'm going to tell them that I dropped out of school. And that's what I did. And well, good plan. It I mean, was. And my, you know, dinner. <laughs> yeah, I never forget my mother being like, and my father being like, we're very upset at the decisions you're making, but there's nothing we can say about that because you have a job and an apartment. So, and that apartment only lasted for like three months. I had five roommates. You had five roommates. It was a five bedroom duplex for $1,500 on Gates Ave, Gates and Class in, in Brooklyn. I had five roommates. We each paid $300 each. And I was the only one who was coming up. I was the only one with a job. So that only, so that's the whole college roommate thing. Like you get to a certain age and you'd be like, no more, no more roommates. Yeah, I mean, that same place is probably, you know, 
five times that given what's yeah, happened in Brooklyn, um, right? <laughs> Kenny Green, rest in peace, was the lead singer of a group called Intro. He had that apartment before me. And his ma- mail still came while I was at that apartment. Wow, because uh, I remember intro uh, R&B group, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was like, I remember them um, when I was coming up. Now his not- checks used to come to K Green, and my name is Talib Kwali Green, and I went to try to catch cash one. See if you catch checks. somebody slipping. Yeah, <laughs> at the they, I, nah, they, they didn't give me that money. Uh, so now that you you mentioned your daughter is is rapping, um, when she first started expressing interest, were you supportive? A little reluctant? What was kind of your reaction to that? I was definitely a little reluctant because what I do is very hard. There's a lot of heartbreak for artists, and most artists do not make it. Um, You know, I'm in a very... It's hard. Um, I understand that the definition of success for me is doing what you love for a living. So whether she's rich or famous, as long as she gets to do what she loves for a living, I feel like she'll be all right. But that's a scary, scary prospect as a parent, that there's no security. There's no security in what I do. And it's scary that my daughter wants to follow down that path. But it's also like... I kind of, it's kind of my fault. What yeah. can I do about it? Well, but could you see signs that she was definitely headed in that direction? No, she, um, she was like painting when she was in high, high school. Um, she started rapping maybe two, three years ago. She picked it up quick though. She really has a love for it. I don't know if she just loves having swag on her Instagram or she really loves rapping, but she really loves like being creative. Mm. Yeah. So what, so I don't know if it's, you know, if it's the same as it works in sports where a lot of times, you know, sons or even daughters, if they have a parent that played the same sport, they will not hesitate to tell them I'm going to be better than you or I am better than you. Is there, does she feel that sense of rivalry with you? Um, She probably does. She hasn't vocalized it yet. My son raps. Um, And my son is like that. Like my son will be like, you know, tr- my son is better at his age, and I was at his age. Um, but my son is like, he'll, he'll like, my son plays basketball, and he's always like, he's always like, come test my skills. He's, he starts to box now, and I, I used to like box a few years ago. I introduced it to him when I was like in my boxing phase. I never got in the ring to have a, have a bout with anyone, but I was boxing, like learning the fundamentals to stay healthy. And I was showing my son because it felt like a real man thing to do, to teach your son how to box. So I told him a couple of things and then he went past it. So now he'd be like jabbing at me and be like, I don't do that no more. Leave me, leave me alone. <laughs> You're like, hold on, man. They stop trying to compete with me, man. <laughs> so what is he, was he uh, throwing some music and some beats and like, dad, rap right now. <laughs> yeah, Let's like, go. Let's he hasn't done. He hasn't done that. Like he tests me with the boxing, <laughs> but he don't test me with the mic yet. But he's, but I think he knows he's better not, than I was at that age. Really? Yeah. Now, do they say other rappers, do they mess with you and say other rappers are better than you? No, they know better than me. <laughs> <laughs> just want to just want to make sure that they understand that who's still paying the bills around yeah. there, right? Yeah. Um, well, look, we have a, a lot more to get to uh, with you, and especially you mentioned it very briefly about your activism because I certainly want to get in, into that, and because um, you're certainly one of the more active voices, not just on social media, but just in the way that you have chosen to use your voice, especially at this critical time. So I want to talk to you more about that, Talib, when we come back. I could sit here and talk to you for several hours, so I'll, I'll try to keep this uh, as limited and brief as I can because there's so much I want to get it's to you about. It's all good. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, same here. Um, you know, in addition, what I always think is a great thing, especially in the line of work that allowed me to come across somebody like you, is when people that you considered your fave from an artistic and entertainment standpoint, when you meet them and they're a better person, um, then kind of even the uh, the entertainment or the artistry that they represent. So for my fave to actually in real life be somebody that I want to talk to, you know. Oh, I appreciate yeah, that. that. I feel the same way about you. Yeah, that, that definitely means um, a lot. Now, you have, um, I think, really become one of the leading voices when it comes to talking about, um, you know, white supremacy and racism and a lot of different social ills, especially on social media. I live for you to clown these fools on Twitter because they <laughs> all deserve it for the most part. The ones that make the mistake of coming at you. Right. I feel the same about you. Yeah. I you mean, don't I, tweet as much as me, but you definitely go as hard as I, me. I try to. You know, I try to reserve it or I just put my Twitter goons on them. But um, why do you feel as if it's important? 
important to for you to address um, some of these issues on a forum like Twitter? Mm-hmm. Well, one, I mean, I've never been a shut up and sing dude or a shut up and dribble dude. In my music, on every platform that I can get my music to, I've addressed white supremacy and I've talked about racism. So, so why would I not do that on social media? I feel like us as a society, and it's not people's fault, people have lives to live and they're so busy living their lives trying to survive that social media interaction is a privilege. You and me get to do it because we're comfortable in life. Most people are just surviving and their social media media uh, activity is very limited. So they don't, they don't get to interact in the way we do. I don't get mad at people when they say, I don't understand why he does it. Because it's not for you to understand. Your life path didn't lead you to this. There's a, a lot of people in the world, in fact, most people in the world, if they saw my mentions, if they saw the racism that people throw at me and the hatred, it would stress them the fuck out. It would trigger them. You know, there's people who have been through traumatic things where it's like, I'm not going to spend my time and energy dealing with that. Why would I invite that negative energy into my life? And for those people who are frankly, because of how they live their life, uh, it's not a judgment, but this is just the truth, are not built to interact in the way that I interact. I say, stay away from it. I say, mute me, block me, don't come on my Twitter feed because my life has me in a place where I'm empowered and energized when I do it. Like I couldn't imagine not doing it. Like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, if I'm not, if I'm feeling down, I'm like, you know what? I could probably expose a white supremacist or two and that's going to be a pick me up. And then doing that, it's going to be like, boom, boom, boom. You know? So that's speaking on the people who our lives are so hectic that they don't have time to, to invite extra negativity and stress into their life because they don't have the time, energy or information or resources to even combat it. Like how I can combat it and I'll combat it for them. But then there's the other people who are spending all their time on social media. They're, whether they're on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whether they're ordering from DoorDash or Uber or whether they're, whatever they're doing, like people are spending 50, 60, 70, 80% of their time on social media doing things that are for, in their lives have very real consequences. But then they see bigotry and they'd be like, oh, ignore that. That's not real. Well, how is all this other stuff real? But this is not real. How is it in 2016 that Donald Trump could tweet, could retweet neo-Nazi accounts 75 times? And the only major news source that reported on it was Fortune magazine. Nobody else reported on it. Forbes, uh, uh, CNN, Fox, nobody. I, I mean, I've looked for the story other places. Nobody reported on it. And the reason why nobody reported on it, because at that time in May or June of 2016, not only were the, was the mainstream scuttle, but Twitter trolls aren't real. Racism, online bigotry is not real. It was also Donald Trump's not a real candidate and he has no chance to win. So that was their excuse for not covering that. They're like, why would we cover who Donald Trump is tweeting? For what? That's... But if you look at the real consequences of that, and I'll be the first to say I was also the naive person who did not think he could win. I did not think he could win. I was shocked and it made me re- reevaluate my activism and my connection with people because I was like, I'm out the loop. How did I not see that coming? I'm, I'm supposed to be too close to the ground because my friends who were working class, like my friends who were plumbers and don't get to travel the world like I do, they were like, nah, he going to win. You know, Yasin Bey was living in South Africa. I went to visit him. He was like, he going to win. I'm like, no, Hillary got this. He was like, he's going to win. And he was right. I just feel like when we ignored him retweeting those neo-Nazis 75 times and then a year later, they feel so comfortable in broad daylight, marching in the streets, saying Jews will not replace us, yelling blood and soil. And if someone dared say something to them, they pulling out guns and shooting them. Broad daylight, the dude in his Dodge Charger, broad daylight, running a woman over because she dared to say, I don't tolerate Nazis. Like, they felt really comfortable. The guy, James Fields, 20 years old, kid, kid, not even 21. When he ran Heather Heyer over, people missed this story. He had on a white polo shirt and tan khakis. And earlier that day, he had a red cap. The crew he was with was dressed like Donald Trump at uh, Mar-a-Lago. So this is clearly radicalization from the election of Donald Trump that these Nazis felt like oh our man is in office when you see Richard Spencer when Trump won talk about hail Trump you know what I'm saying like and then Trump came and had their back immediately I know those are fine people on both sides but they're they're fine people these are not coincidences so this 
Us ignoring him retweeting those 75 neo-Nazis had real-life consequences where somebody died. Well, my concern and fear is, um, especially seeing the normalization through media, much like you saw it, is that, um, you know, white supremacy has become um, on brand now Mm -hmm. in the sense of that it is no longer something that people are really that ashamed of and I hate that's why I hate using the term alt-right because I feel like that's basically saying white supremacy light I it's, agree it's, it's the same thing it's not even light it's the same thing but as soon as you give it that nickname and that cover then it becomes something else it moves it into a space where you could defend it as an ideology right. as opposed to calling it out as hate speech. Yeah, because the I'm sh- and you get this all the time because I see it is that people will when you come and rail against people with that kind of ideology, they'll accuse you of not being able to tolerate other opinions. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. Hatred's not an other opinion. That shit's just hatred. Yeah, that that's that's the lack of education in our country. People really, you know, you face consequences for standing up for your for your beliefs and as deeper than beliefs you you were sharing facts i believe in fact that donald trump is a white supremacist and that's what you said the fact is, is that people are not educated enough or honest enough to even know the history of racism in this country to even know how to even approach the the topic of understanding how donald trump is a white supremacist and understanding that He's a white supremacist, even if he doesn't know that he's a white supremacist. The vast majority of us are. I, as a, as, a, as a man, have had homophobic tendencies, sexist tendencies that I didn't even know I had until I became older and had to examine my past behavior. But that's something that I want to do. I want to examine my past behavior. Donald Trump and people like him, they want to do the opposite of examining past behavior. It's like when, when Ben uh, Shapiro uh, just got destroyed on that talk show the thing that was most interesting about it is that that guy who's a right-wing guy who i don't agree with that guy's political philosophy but he did the same thing i did to ben shapiro he's like well in this tweet you said this and ben shapiro was like why are you bringing up old shit like that's a tweet from five years ago therefore in my mind it does not count right therefore in my mind why are we examining something i did five years ago i was a different person and that doesn't count for now i have no i have no sense of accountability for what i say or do along the same lines of your personal growth um are there things that you rapped about uh, or touched on 10 or 15 years ago that you wouldn't rap about now? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I spoke on homophobia. There's a lyric on a Liberation album that I'm not proud of, where I say something about, uh, get the fuck up the way, that shit is gay. It sounded fly when I said it because hip-hop as a culture was so homophobic at that time. It was almost like, if you're not homophobic, you're not a real rapper. And as a young man, I fell victim to that. Not a victim. I'm not. I'm not a victim, but I, I, I enabled that. Um, and so that's something that I just got to live with. You know, I, I try not to have any regrets. Um, there are lyrics that when I listen back to them, not too many, but there's a there's a couple lyrics when I listen back to them that that could be someone can make a case for that might be a sexist or misogynist lyric, and then I can make a case. Well, or well, I'm speaking in third person, or that's not really me. I could do that, but I, I, I absolutely have grown, and absolutely the way that I see making music is different at 43 than it was when I was 23. Do you feel as if hip-hop has progressed in that manner when it comes to homophobia, misogyny, or is it still kind of, you know, a little stop-start, um, a little three steps forward, two steps back? I will say it's progressed because it has to. It had to. It, it, it would die if it didn't get more progressive. Progressive is is where everything should go. Everything has to progress. But I will also say that due to the sort of... um film of authenticity that's over hip-hop like keep it real and this and that hip-hop has been largely untouched by me too and largely untouched by cancel culture which me too i'm down with cancel culture i'm not down with but hip-hop has been largely uh unscathed you know uh there's lyrics things that come out things that rick ross might have said a little Wayne might have said that the community uh stands up to and those artists to their credit uh, took responsibility for those things. But, you know, hip-hop is like, we get away with a lot more because of this sort of keep it real aesthetic. Yeah. Why are you not a, a fan of cancel culture? Well, because I think that's a, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone should be canceled because of a mistake. To me, cancel, cancel, cancel TV shows off for good. You know, you know, you can't cancel. Um, the cancel culture, the, the criticism I have of cancel culture is the idea that everything you did up to that point gets erased. Um, 
if somebody says something like if you Jamel Hill said something that I disagree with, you might use if you say something on a podcast or in your book or write something in the Atlantic that I'm like, I don't I don't agree with that. I think she might have been off base on that. If you're someone I never heard of, I might be dismissive of you. If you're someone who has a history of fucking up all the time, like a Tommy Lauren or Ann Coulter, I'm going to be like, see, that's what I'm talking about. But if you're someone who has a history of being on code and I just happen to not agree with a couple of things, how could I dismiss the everything else you did and just be like, she's canceled? No, that's not. And the only people who push that are people who have never accomplished anything in life. If you accomplish anything in life, you know how difficult it is. And you know that you messed up on the way to doing that. You know that I'm not going to judge somebody for being a human fucking being and messing up and and not being perfect. The idea that we have to be perfect and the idea that, especially on social media, because that's where the cancel culture happens. A lot of those cancel culture conversations, you have them with actual people in the street and they don't know what you're talking about. They'd be like, yo, did you know that such and such canceled? Who? What? I what they say? I didn't even know that was happening. Right. I didn't get the memo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The people who are invested in that are people who are clout chasers, people who are so impressed by celebrity and so impressed by fame and so jealous of it that when they see you do something that they can weaponize against you, they want to take away your fame as if fame is the only thing I got going for me. Yeah. Well, but, but it's, it's hard, though, because I do think it's uh, it depends on the offense, mm -hmm. depends on what it is, because I think there's some people that's really easy to cancel. Mm -hmm. Um you know, R. Kelly, really easy to get. Well, see, now here's the thing. Like, R. Kelly, to me, R. Kelly, to me, is more about being on code. They're canceling people. The reason, so if we're going to use the language of cancel, well, look how many chances R. Kelly had. Right. Like, unlimited. Unlimited. Yeah. His male privilege allowed him to, I mean, he literally had to state on tape that he's sleeping with a 14-year-old for everybody to be like, wait, 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 hold up. Like, we had to, like, it's like... R. Kelly, that's what, and also the music industry insulated him for a long time. You know, R. Kelly really went all out of his way to get caught at this point, at this point. So it's like, I'm down with saying, let's not support R. Kelly. I'm just down with calling it cancel culture. Right. Yeah. Well, somebody like Kanye West is mm -hmm. probably a little more. He's a perfect example for what I'm he's talking a, about. He's a, he's a little more problematic. He, Kanye West is like the case study for what I just said. Yeah. Because... I'm friends with Kanye West. His music has a, a huge part of my life. And I've been DJing lately in the past few years. I don't play Kanye West records anymore as, as a friend of his. As a friend of his who loves his music and knows every song by heart. When I DJ in a club, I don't play Kanye West music. And I'm here to tell you, that's very hard to do. Is that more about how you feel the, the audience would respond or you it just, depends on the audience. I've played okay. audiences that I feel like I could play Kanye and they wouldn't care and they would sing along. And I've played audiences that they'd be like, why is Kweli playing that? So it really depends on the audience, but it's a personal thing for me. I don't feel good when I play his music. It hurts me. You know, it, the Kanye thing was real personal to me. Candace Owens came at me on Twitter last January, February. And when she did, I got called nigger, monkey, this, and I had never heard of her before then. Someone, some, some white supremacist sicked her on me. Well, Candace Owens, he, he added her and then she started talking shit about me. A month after that, Kanye's tweeting, I like the way she thinks. So me and Kanye had a very good relationship at that time. We don't speak as much anymore, but I hit him immediately like, bro, this is how she talks to me. This is how she talks to Don Cheadle. This is what she says to black people. This is what I'm, she's not the one, bro. Let me be the first to tell you. I sent him screenshots, everything. His response to me was, you know I love Donald Trump. That was his response? Word for word. And I got I still got that screenshot. You know what I'm saying? Cause I, I took a picture of it like, like, whoa. Okay. You're like, was this spam? <laughs> so I was like, I, I was like, I didn't ask you about Donald Trump. Um, I did not know that because at that point he had deleted his pro-Trump tweets. So I thought he was over it. So I was like, I didn't know that you love Donald Trump, but that's a separate subject. I'm talking about Candace Owens, how she's coming at someone that you say that you love. I'm not understanding how you could say you like the way she thinks. And I'm telling you that this is how what happens with me when she comes at me. And he didn't respond to that. And so I, I was like, okay, he's my friend, so I'll let it go. He retweeted something about the Republicans are the ones that, I mean, the Democrats are the ones that started the KKK. So I was like, look, no, he retweeted a tweet. He was feeling the backlash. And he was like, man, I just, you know, I just want to feel some love. He tweeted a tweet about love. So I, I, I hit him with a text like, I love you. And after not responding to me for months, he responded to me within 30 seconds. I love you too. 
So I was like, okay, he really just is in need of love, right? So he said the thing about the Republican, I mean, the Democrats, and I started sending him all these links. You are wrong. And now you're intentionally spreading white, uh, right-wing propaganda. You got to stop. And his response to that was, can you put it all in one screenshot so that I could tweet it? Because he called himself trying to have the conversation at that point. I want to hear from the MAGA people. I want to hear from... So I did. I, I, I put the talking points and he tweeted it. And I was like, okay, maybe this and that, that and this. Um, but I say all that to say, I've been rare. I could talk about Kanye forever. <laughs> I say all that to say, I consider him a friend. I love him to death. If somebody was trying to physically har harm him, I'd probably die for him. But as his friend, we have to hold our friends accountable. And Kanye West, who's my friend, has put a target on, on our backs or collectively with his pro-Trump rhetoric, with his, with his misogynist re rhetoric that he said when he went to meet Trump. That's the worst thing he did. Everything else, the free thinker, the worst thing he did to me was going up to Trump and telling Trump that Trump made him feel like more like a man because he lives with a bunch of women. That was the worst thing he could. I felt like I try not to have my activism be personal, like based on I got a daughter. But that's how I felt in that moment. Like, I got a daughter, bro. She's your fan. Stop doing that. Yeah, it's tough, though, not to take it personal because given what his albums have meant to a lot of us and, you know, uh, college graduation, all of those albums, like they tell the soundtrack of our lives and our Absolutely. experiences. Absolutely. And so it's, it's hard to reconcile that these are the same two people. And for me, I don't feel comfortable listen to, listening to his music uh, anymore. And I'll admit there's other artists. It's not that easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to take a minute for me and Michael Jackson. It's going to take a minute. Yeah, I haven't, you know? I haven't watched the, um, the doc and I have it on my queue. Right. But I, I know that when I watch it, I'm going to have to make my own decisions. I, I stopped playing Michael Jackson music, not only because I play Michael Jackson in my set um, when, I, when I do my show. I took it out, not because I've done my due diligence with the research, but I just didn't want to trigger anybody. Right. I was like, I need to, I need to have form my own opinion before I, you know what I'm saying? Well, like, that's the thing that makes, you know, sort of this, I, I would like you, I would hesitate to use the word cancel culture because I do think that we need to allow people an opportunity to grow. Like yeah. it's, it's clear Kevin Hart has grown. Like when he, yeah, yeah, yeah. when all all of the things that happened with him in, in the Academy Awards, it was an old joke. I felt like his biggest mistake was that he didn't own it and he doesn't understand that when, like if somebody asked you, like if I had I asked you on this podcast, hey, uh, Talib, what about when you made that reference to being gay? Yeah. Then you would have had a response for that and said, hey, it's, a, it's something I regret in right. the story. Let's move on. But he was so defensive about it Mo that that's like what most got people. him. Most yeah. people do not understand what a good apology is. And that's something that I pride myself on in my personal relationships before I even had to do anything. In my personal relationships, I worked hard to make sure that if I'm apologizing, it's because I really mean it and I'm getting that across. And, you know, I love Kevin, but I think that he really didn't understand his apology that he references. I think for many in that community wasn't good enough. And I think that's where the disconnect happens because he was doing he was like, I apologized already. But a lot of people were like, we didn't accept that apology. You know, so I think it was hard for him and other people to understand that for your apology, it, a lot of people ain't going to accept it. You know, um, I think Kanye, but like Kevin has cultural currency. He I'll, he'll be fine. You know, um, Kanye has still has cultural currency. You still think he does. Huh? He does. I think Kanye could turn this around. I don't think he's going to turn around this year. <laughs> yeah, but right. I, I, I feel like I feel like there's a high probability if all things go right, 10 to 20 years from now. We're going to be laughing at this. We're going to be... Remember when so. you were supporting Trump like a dick? <laughs> remember that? You know what I'm saying? Like, he's going to be like, I know, I fucked up. Yeah, oh, my he's God. He's going to be like, that was a dark time right. in my life. Right. He's going to make a song about it with a dope punchline that everyone's singing in the club, and it's going to be over. It's the power to jam. Yeah, I hope that that's the case, because I would hate to have to, um, you know, kind of lose what his music you know, meant to me earlier in his career because I feel like that's kind of happening where I'm losing touch with it. I don't even, it's hard for me to even listen to that version of Kanye. Yeah, it's Be really hard because sometimes I hear a Kanye West song and I'm reminded of how good he is. And yeah. it's like, oh, And it only pisses you off because you're so like, dude, good. why do you make me have to give you up for no yeah. reason? Well, while we're uh, on the subject of, of influential hip-hop artists, of which no doubt he is one, his style, his certainly his production, all of those things. And, and on a personal level, He's helped me feed my family as well. Mm. So I, I got to add that too. Yeah. I mean, that can be overlooked as well. Um, so your top five MCs, who are they? It's too hard of a question for me. See, 
why you do this? Because it's a, it's a <laughs> okay. Re- can I ask you a five favorite? How it's, about that? It's, it's a revolving better? door. Favorite is better. Okay, but it's it's favorite still. It's a revolving door, and that, I understand that because some of it is mood based. Yeah, and it's mood based, and it's based on what is what's the parameters, like what style, like it's like the people who revolve in my top five are people who I'm I'm close to. Uh, uh, Common, Most Def, uh, Black Thought is absolutely. In my number he's one in my spot. top five. Yeah, he's in <laughs> yeah. my number one spot. Um, there's 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 Kane and Rakim and 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 KRS. There's Jay Z and Nas. There's um, I like Kendrick and I like J Cole. There's um, Gene Gray. There's Farrah Monch, Micah Nine from Freestyle Fellowship. Um, it depends on really what it is we're trying to do. Right. Okay. So if I just say. <laughs> I love that's a that's a great stunt. <laughs> just is calling you now. Um, so if I said lyricist, if I just strictly put it to lyricist, what would you say? Um, that's like Black Thought, Eminem, Gene Gray, Farrah Monch, Jay Z, Nas. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good list, yeah. and I feel bad sometimes because I often leave Eminem off of my top five and I'm say, from Detroit. I got to add Bun B and Scarface. Oh, for sure. Andre 3000. I he's still, almost so good. He's like a ringer. He's like Okay, he, so here's my complaint <laughs> about Andre 3000. Okay, let's hear it. And it's not a complaint about anything he's ever spit because we know that when he gets on anything, it, it just, it makes it special. Right. I can't put him in my top five because I need him to put out his own album. All right, because I feel like he's cheating the game to some degree. So is Love Below not? I, don't, I can't count. I, I can't count that. I right? Mean, it was I, mean, I know it was separate. Big Boy had his side. He had his side, but he takes his chances. He's very judicious with how he, you know, takes his chances on features. Certainly with projects he's done with with Outkast. Whereas right. other rappers like yourself, mm-hmm. you putting out music on music on music, you're taking a chance every time you do it that somebody may not like it, and in somebody's top five, not that you care, right. you'll be knocked out. And he does. He has not done that. To Let the me same ask you level. this though: You said Black Thought is in your top five. Yes. When did he join your top five? Oh man. Um, this was a while ago. Now, he, I've been a day one on the roots, though. But he didn't put out a solo album until last year. That is true. With so, Ninth Wonder. Yeah. yeah, yeah he's that put out true. two since then. Mm-hmm. He got excited when he did that Flex Freestyle. He hit me. He was like, yo, they really feeling your boy. I'm like, yo, no that, shit. Yeah, that Flex, uh, that Funkmaster Flex yo, Freestyle is unbelievable. I'm here to tell y'all, he didn't know how much we liked him. Like, the response when that Freestyle, he hit me like, yo, the response is crazy. I'm like, of course. He's like, yo. And this is what he told me. He's like, I'm going to put out an album every month. He did. And then he, I went month. to the stu- I did. He did. I went to the studio and he played me 50 songs. This was last year. And he put out the Ninth Wonder album that month. And they said, I'm putting out the Slam Re- Remy album next month. He, he slowed down. He put the Slam Remy album out around Christmas time. But his pl- once he did that flex freestyle, Black or the days of Black Thought not having an album out is over. Like I'm doing all the albums. Well, the, the, I recently had him as a, a guest on this podcast, and the thing that I didn't know was that Phrenology was largely supposed to be his solo album. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and I'm he, on that album. Yeah, yes, you are yeah. on Phrenology, and I always wondered why it seemed for all the Roots projects, and I've never disliked one, and I wouldn't say I dislike that one, but that one seemed more not as cohesive as the one as they usually are. And he was like, yeah, that's because a lot of it was meant to be solo tracks. Right. And so I guess it's different for him. I don't put him in the 3000 category because Andre was, I know they're both part of groups, but the only rapper was thought. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. early B. on that they had Malik yeah, B. B. He, he but, dropped out. Yeah. He dropped out, but it's just been those two. And so I feel like three stacks needs to come with some solo albums in order to make this. Here's my thing with three stacks why he never really makes my list. I played little league. And when I played Little League, there were like Dominican kids who were like 15 and 16 with mustaches who were playing against us. And we'd be like, that's a ringer. And that's a sports term, right? Ringer, right? Totally. That's a ringer. Let's see his birth certificate. A thousand percent. And we used to have to stop the game and be like, we need to see his birth certificate because he's pitching way too fast. Yeah. Like none of us can hit it. And so we used to catch a couple of the ringers. To me, Andre 3000 is a ringer. When I hear him rap, I'm like, he's too, he's too good. He's not allowed to play. I, no, he's not allowed in the league, bro. Like, you not you got you to judge. You can't you can't come and compete with us. Yeah, especially he's not allowed to come in and just like, oh, I'm just going to drop in no, on this Anderson Pack song. And no, then you I'm can't out. do that, bro. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Like, you yeah, just Yeah, that cheating. song he did on that uh, Hello, Hello. On yeah, that uh, stop it, bro. Stop. Just stop. You not- I, I was mad at both of them <laughs> just for not having uh, brought that to my life, um, you know, much, much sooner. Well, look, uh, Talib, thank you so much. 
much for coming by oh, and, and blessing this pleasure. podcast. Oh, yeah. One final question I, I did want to ask you. Are you underappreciated or underrated? Which one would you say? People tell me that I'm underrated and that I'm underappreciated all the time. And it makes me feel like I'm super appreciated and rated highly and highly favored by people. Because how could I be upset that people were constantly telling me how much other people don't appreciate me? That means a hell of a lot of people appreciate me and they just wish that others would. Yeah, it's kind of like they used to say that about Tim Duncan. Like, oh, Tim Duncan is underappreciated and he's underrated. It's like, well, he's rated because people right. are just like, he is underappreciated and underrated. So, right. but I often, when people describe you, I see those two terms frequently, much like you do. So that's why I wanted to ask yeah, if you thought it. you were either one, you know? And the, the answer is you're neither because you're perfectly appreciated and perfectly rated. Yeah. And a perfect guess for and I, it's a blessing. How could I ask for more? Well, you could ask for more, right, <laughs> and I'm sure selfish. you'll get more. Uh, but anyway, thank you uh, for bringing your appreciated and rated self to this podcast. I <laughs> really appreciate it, me. and for changing my plans tonight. So thank you. <laughs> oh, no doubt. We're going we gonna to kick it. All right, kids, you know what time it is. Uh, time to wrap up this wonderful podcast with, of course, another segment of Fuck It, I'm Bothered, where I go off about something that has been bothering me, big or small, or sometimes in between. Now, look, I know we're a little bit removed from the Game of Thrones series finale. And like a lot of you, I was also a little bit disappointed. I was beyond disappointed. Now, would I call it trash? No. But fuck it, I'm bothered because it was bad enough that the disappointing end of this series sort of consumed me for as much as it did. But to make matters worse, we have Twitter sleuths and Internet sleuths out there just reminding us of how little thought to some degree that the writers for Game of Thrones put into this last season. How little thought you may ask? So little, in fact, that we caught two, or I shouldn't say we, but the sleuths caught two continuity issues within this series this season and what's supposed to be a, a series or at least a season-ending series that should be perfect. Like, they should go, they should make sure that no detail remains untouched, that they totally figure out, hey, we got to have our stuff locked up from A to Z. That's what they should be doing, right? But unfortunately, the internet caught two huge gaffes. One was the fact that Daenerys Targaryen, uh, Emilia Clark, she had a Starbucks cup, all right? She had a Starbucks cup in Winterfell. And, you know, it was a little before Starbucks' time. The other was my man Samuel Tardy, who, as the sleuths so graciously pointed out as we're all reeling from this disappointment that there was a water bottle next to his foot in the very last episode of Game of Thrones. Now, as somebody who's been in TV forever and certainly spent many years on daily television, some of these things happen. Now, granted, I realize that that's a whole different story when you're on someplace like ESPN as opposed to a production like Game of Thrones. But nevertheless, I have taped some things where there has been a continuity issue. It happens a lot in TV. However, unfortunately, it just drove home the point of why everybody was so disappointed in how this series ended. It wasn't that it had to be totally perfect, but the very least you could do, Game of Thrones people, as in the creators and writers, very least you could do is make sure the damn Starbucks cup and the water bottle aren't there for everybody to see it. Can you give us that? We already have to deal with the fact that you pretty much rendered Jon Snow's bloodline as a Targaryen useless. We had to deal with the fact that Arya went off to West of Westeros to start a bunch of Airbnbs or whatever the hell she did. We had to deal with the fact that Brienne didn't get to tell Jamie Lannister to his face that he wasn't shit after he left her to go die in the arms of Cersei. We already have to deal with all of those disappointments. And now you have the water bottle and the Starbucks cup. Come on, man. Y'all can't do this to us. All right. It was already bad enough. And that just made it worse. Anyway, I just want to give another shout out to Talib Kweli for joining me on this podcast. I know that going forward, 
We're not going to have a, a series like Game of Thrones where we can all, you know, treat it like the water cooler talk and, and get around and complain and and bitch about it, as I have done on many of these episodes already on this podcast. So for that, I say I will ultimately be satisfied with my Game of Thrones watching. However, that being said, I still reserve the right to be disappointed in the way that it ended. Hope you weren't disappointed by this podcast. You shouldn't have been. If you did, that's your problem, not mine. And until next time, stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs> <laughs>